Good morning. Many of you are somewhat familiar with Helen of Troy. She's briefly mentioned in the Iliad, a book that many of you were forced to read at some point in school. She was the legendary queen of Sparta, the, the wife of Menelaus. She was claimed to be the most beautiful woman in all the world and consequently was abducted by Paris, the Trojan prince. Now, her beauty was so extreme, her beauty was to such a degree that, that the entire Greek peninsula, actually, in response to Paris's abduction of her, responded by going out and engaging in what came to be known as the Trojan War to retrieve her and to bring her back to her home. Later on, Christopher Marlowe, the, uh, the, the poet, he would go on to describe her, uh, we often, many of us are aware of this quote, he would describe her as the face that launched a thousand ships, right? And her, her beauty was supposed to be so great that she would go on to, uh, to, to be the subject of a litany of artwork um, all, down all through the ages of people contemplating, of people trying to reflect her mythical beauty. It was that extreme, right? Uh, that supposedly entire armies would go and to sacrifice their lives in order to deliver her. The desire for beauty is universal, it's universal. It's a desire that all of us have. We go about it, we go about looking for it in different ways though, right? We go to different places for it. Whether it's a crystal clear lake or whether it's the majestic rocky mountains or potentially to the art museum to look at the oil paintings or potentially to the theater to watch a performance. Some of us go to the arms of a significant others, of a significant others. Some of us find it through personal expression. But no matter what, we are all beauty seekers, right? We are driven by a thirst to know it and to experience it more. This morning, we come to the end of a series of sermons looking at at Luke's four Christmas songs. Throughout this series, we've been looking at one of Luke's unique contributions to the Nativity by his narration of these four songs. We've seen Mary, we've seen Zechariah, we've seen the angels all giving praise to God for what he's accomplished in the birth of Jesus Christ. And today we come to the last of those four songs. We, we come to the song of Simeon. It's often referred to as the, as the Nunc Dimittis. Um, the Nunc Dimittis, that name comes from the, the first two Latin words in the Latin version of this song. And appropriately enough, appropriately enough, this song is actually the song that, that was sung after Jesus' birth, so after Christmas Day. So it's very appropriate that we're addressing it this morning after Christmas. As we look at this song, we're going to note the role of beauty, which in our passage today won't launch a thousand ships, but rather it's going to do something far more significant, far more profound. So this morning, we're going to engage in a conversation on beauty and specifically the effects of that beauty and the effects that it should have on all of us and our need, our desire to pursue it all the more aggressively. So we'll look at the truths of Christ and we'll look at the effects of Christ this morning, the truths of who he is and the effects that he should have on each and every one of us. We're looking this morning then at Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. It's one of the shorter songs that's recorded. Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. And I'll read. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come before you in your word this morning, Lord, that you would just be present here with us. God, we need you. Lord, please just open our eyes to the beauty and the majesty of your Son this morning. Lord, allow us to behold his glory and his splendor in new ways, Father, that shake our hearts, Father, that leave us rattled. God, please just work something profound in us, Lord, and allow us to be like those of, of the, those Greeks, Father, who, who were so motivated by the beauty of another, Lord, that they would even sacrifice their lives. God, I pray that that would be the effect on each of us this morning. God, please just be with us as we are, as we are in your word. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So, Jess, first, for, for a little bit of context, okay, so as I already mentioned, as we approach this passage this morning, verses 21 to 24 um, of chapter 2, Jesus has already been born, right? Jesus has already been born, and Joseph and Mary are continuing to live on in Bethlehem. Now, they're both righteous individuals, and so consequently we see them taking the necessary steps to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament law. In verse 23, they take Jesus to the temple on the eighth day to have him circumcised and to have him named, again, according to Old Testament law, according to the law of Moses. Next, in verse uh, in verses 22 to 24, we see him return. We see him return 33 days later. And they would do this for the, for, for the necessary steps for purification and for the dedication of Jesus to God. There they would sacrifice either two turtle doves or two pigeons. This would be a very standard um, um, offering from a poor individual in the wake of a birth. And so, and so again, and, and then along with that, they would also, it was necessary that they would pay a ransom for Jesus, right? Again, just a very standard step for a firstborn son in the ancient first century Jewish world. So uh, we see in Mary, Mary and Joseph that they are, that they are righteous individuals, that they're taking the steps, that they care about the law, that they want to honor God. But at the same time, this is also a very normal situation. This is a very normal first century Jewish family. And then all of a sudden, the abnormal happens, right? Then the story takes an odd turn. In verse 25, we have a character named Simeon who shows up. Now, we don't know much about Simeon. It's interesting because while Luke takes interest in telling us a lot of details about a lot of other individuals that we've met so far in his gospel, he doesn't actually tell us a whole lot about Simeon. He's an enigmatic character. He's mysterious. We assume that he's older. He doesn't appear to be a priest or anything like that. We don't know who he is really or what he does. What Luke Luke does tell us about him is that first, he's a righteous and devout figure in verse 25. He's a man who follows after God and lives a life that's dedicated to him. Second, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, this means that he's waiting for God to step in and put all things back to rights for his people. We're going to come back to this expression later, the consolation of Israel. And number three, that the Holy Spirit is on him. The Holy Spirit is with him. It's work, he's working in his heart, even to such a degree that he's given him a prophecy that he will actually see the birth of the Messiah, the Christ. 
This is the long-expected Jewish figure who would come, who would reign, and who would put all things back to, back to the way they should be. This is the Jewish Messiah. And he had a guarantee that he was actually going to see him before he died. Now, Simeon, as best as we can tell from looking at this, Mary and Joseph don't actually know who he is. So while there are many things to emulate here this morning as we look at Simeon, one thing we want to be careful to do is when we see a young family walk in with their newborn babe, we don't go and take them out of that, that, that couple's hands, right? That, that would be creepy and scary. If you see, so for those of you who are regulars here, don't steal someone's baby this morning trying to reflect Simeon. Right? I, I don't know what Mary and Joseph's response would have been to that. I mean, I imagine just kind of shock and awe, even in the first century world. So Simeon takes the Christ child. He takes Jesus, and he looks at him, and he sees two things when he looks at him. He sees two things. He looks at him, and first, he sees Jesus. But then he looked closer, and he saw Jesus. Right, he, he he saw he saw Jesus, but he saw he saw him on one level, but then he also saw him on a on a deeper level. First, he sees the squirmy, pudgy little baby boy, a fragile infant infant that has to be gingerly cradled in his mother's arms, a child that is wholly dependent upon his young teenage mother for life and sustenance. But then, as he looked closer, there was something else, and this something else causes him to burst into praise to God. There's a, there's an example of a famous image entitled, My Wife and My Mother-in-Law. I, I didn't give it that title. Um, but, but that, that's apparently the title of the piece. The earliest version comes from the late 1800s in a German postcard. And, uh, many of you have probably seen it before. It's actually two images in one picture. You have the image of a young woman, but then you also have an image of an older woman in the picture. Now, it's typical for people to look at this picture who are unfamiliar with it and to see one or the other, but probably not see both images at the same time, right? You can kind of make out the profile of the older woman in it, um, and, and then the young woman's kind of turning away. Um, so, so it's typical to see one, but it's a little bit atypical to see both of them at the same time, again, unless you're familiar with the picture. Um, however... As Simeon looks at the young baby Jesus, he sees both images at the same time. And the second one rattles him. It leaves him rattled. Saintly Simeon peered peered closely at the Christ child, and that second image became clear to him. Three things, three things in particular stood out. Three truths about Jesus. These three true truths are found throughout all of the Old Testament, but especially appear to draw from Old Testament prophet Isaiah, right? Simeon's understanding of Christ was formed and molded by his reading of Isaiah and by his prophecies about him. Simeon pieces these things together into into this Isaiah, this Isaiah picture of a coming Messiah, a Christ, into three points. The first thing that he points out is salvation. Salvation, verses 30 to 31. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. What does Simeon mean here by salvation? One of the things we have to be careful when we're reading our Bibles is not to read into the Bibles what we expect to find. Sometimes we're guilty of coming to this and just reading in our own expectations instead of really drawing out what's actually there. So again, we have to go back to Isaiah to really get an understanding of what does Simeon mean by salvation. 
Isaiah chapter 52 verses 8 to 10 helps to paint that picture. Isaiah 52 verses 8 to 10. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, for eye, to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Just a little pause there. That, that's ancient parallelism. Those two lines, the Lord comforting his people and the Lord redeeming his people, those two have come together to help interpret one another. To comfort is to be redeemed. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. In Isaiah's language, salvation or redemption is the comfort and the consolation of God's people. Remember, that's what Simeon's been waiting for. That's what we saw back in verse 25, right? The consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel refers to the regathering of God's people. It's the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations, and it's the liberation of God's people from their enemies. It's... It's almost like a redo of what we saw in the story of the Exodus from Egypt. For those who are familiar with Moses leading his people, uh, leading his people to the promised land. Except this is even grander. It's even bigger. This is on a final scale. This is the expectation about what would happen. We see the same theme again later on in, in Isaiah verse, uh, or chapter 40 verses 1 to 5. There it reads, comfort, comfort my people. Again, there's that word, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall be level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Comfort and consolation are the deliverance of God's people here specifically from the context of the Babylonian exile. Isaiah chapter 51 verses one to three or verse three goes on to develop this even further. And this is good. This is rich. I hope you can appreciate this. Isaiah 51 verse three. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her, and this is, this is significant. He makes her wilderness like Eden. He makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving, uh, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Right? The blessedness of salvation and consolation results in a restoration. A restoration that's comparable only to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 to 3. This is the ultimate fulfillment that Israel is waiting for. This is the salvation that Israel was longing for. A cosmic renewal. A setting of all things to rights. All of the wrongs and all of the woes of the world coming undone. And the restoration of God's original intentions in Genesis 1 with all things being good and with God's people living in a paradise-like state. This is the expectation. 
It's kind of like for, for those of us who used to play the original Nintendo back in the 90s, right, as kids, when occasionally you would have to reset the game because the game would get buggy and there would be weird things happening. And so you push the reset button a couple times, which that never works. So you have to pull the game cartridge out and then you blow on it to try to get it to work again. Which many of you younger congregants are sitting there saying, why would you blow on a game? What, what does that even mean? Um, but, but just take my word. You had to blow on it. And then you put it back in and jam it down a few more. T- and then it works, right? It was a reset. It was a way to reset the whole thing. This is what Israel is waiting for. They're waiting for a reset. They're expecting God to step in and to reset all of creation. All of creation has gotten buggy through the first sin of Adam in the fall. And it has just continued to spiral down generation after generation. And they needed a divine reset. Simeon's expectation for salvation is bigger. It's way bigger than often gets described in our culture today. So often when we talk about salvation today, we talk about it in terms of just, it's a get out of hell pass, right? But that, that, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something so much bigger and so much more significant, right? Isaiah looked forward to a new era of fulfillment and Simeon sees it now as he looks at the face of Jesus. Simeon looked at the babe and saw salvation. He looked at his ad, he looked, he saw that his advent was a portent of refreshment for all things, but he saw even more. Simeon writes in verse 32, he saw a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Again, drawing from Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 through 3. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then in Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So all of the nations, all of the nations, all of the ends of the earth shall see this light of revelation. This is a redemptive light in that it draws people out of the darkness. Simeon's understanding is that God's light and salvation isn't just for Israel. It wasn't just for the people of Israel. It was a missional light that was for all the nations. God wasn't just concerned about Israel. God had a heart for all the nations. And his plan was that Israel would be that light to the ends of the earth. But Israel failed. Israel didn't perform. They didn't end up being the light that they were called to be. So instead, God supplied the light of revelation. And those who, those who don't know God, those nations who didn't know God, they were described as being in thick darkness, right? They're separated from their God. Ephesians 2 describes it as being dead in their trespasses, being aliens to the covenants of hope, being, uh, being, being foreigners without hope in this world. That's the way Ephesians 2 describes this thick darkness. But then the light pierces into the darkness and changes everything. Right, The light gives sight to the blind and the light is so attractive and it's so compelling that it draws people even from the ends of the earth. Like a lighthouse with its light beacon flashing, 
that ships can see it in the dark so that they can be safe, so that they, they don't run ashore, so that they know where they're going. This is what our God has done. He is a lighthouse flashing his beacon of light into the darkness. But that light does something else as well. It's not just a light of mission to the whole world. It's also a light of glory, right? In the other half of verse 32, a light of glory to your people Israel. This is a different emphasis. Looking at Isaiah 60 again, verse 1. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is upon you. And then and then fast forward to verses 19 to 20. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be, the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Yes, the light will be a missional light, and it will deliver people from the darkness, and it will be an alluring light that will draw people across the, from across the world. But even more importantly, it will be a light of God's glory which is to say that the light will be God's very presence with his people. The thing that makes the light so extravagant is not that it's a good gift, right? It's not that it's a good gift. It is, but that's not what makes it so great. The thing that makes it so great is that it's the gift of himself. That's what makes it so great. That light is him. It is his presence. And his presence is so overwhelming and so grandiose that even, even the spatial bodies pale in comparison with his presence. It's his return to Zion that brings comfort in Isaiah 52. It's his proximity that draws the nations in, in Isaiah 60. It's his, his coming is enthralling and his presence is blessedness. It's his presence that makes it so great. Likewise, Simeon isn't saying that baby Jesus will go on to do these three things. He's not saying that Jesus will save and reveal and illumine God's glory. It's true, Jesus does do all of those things, but that's not what Simeon's meaning to emphasize here. What Simeon is saying is that Jesus is each of these three things. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is revelation. Jesus is God's glory. The three things that Jesus does are perfectly united to who he is, right? His face does far more than launch a thousand ships. A thousand ships is nothing. He resets all things. He renews all things because he is God's very presence with us. He is Emmanuel, revealing and drawing the nations and delivering us from this present age of darkness and making all things new. This is what Simeon saw as he looked at the fidgety, feeble babe in his arms, the almighty potentate of all the universe who would set all things to right. God with us. His presence is blessedness. So Simeon expounded on what he saw as he gazed at the Christ child. But that's not all. That's not all. He, he also goes on, he describes his own response. He describes his own response to the Christ. 
right? The first verse, the first verse of our passage, verse 29 of Simeon's songs records the effects of seeing Jesus. It reads, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. A couple of things to draw out from that. First, there's a priority. There's a priority. Simeon had been told that he would live just long enough to see the coming of the Messiah. Now, for most of us, if we were told that an event was coming and we wouldn't live much past that event, we would do everything we could to avoid that event, right? We, we, we would do everything in our power to separate ourselves from the possibility of that event actually happening. But Simeon does the exact opposite. Where, where do we find Simeon when the story picks up? He's in the temple, right? If there's, if there's a Jewish Messiah coming and that's going to mark the end of his life, he should not be in the temple. That's the obvious place where the Messiah would be. I would be anywhere but in the temple. But that's, that's not Simeon. He goes to the temple. He goes to where the Messiah, he knows the Messiah will end up. And not only that, but when he sees the Messiah, he declares that he is ready to go. He is ready. Now, this isn't the declaration of someone who's suicidal. We don't see any indication that Simeon is excited for death. They're longing to end his life on earth. This is the opposite. This is the opposite. Simeon isn't hopeless. He's hopeful. Simeon isn't depressed. Simeon is joyful. Simeon isn't broken. Simeon is full. What we see in Simeon is someone who's found something that is so much sweeter than anything this world has to offer. What we see when we look at Simeon is a man who is so filled with a biblical hope and so filled with the spirit that he's able to see not just the truths of who Jesus is, but rather he's able to also see the rest of the world in light of Jesus, through the filter of Jesus, and it reprioritizes everything. And this leaves him with the realization that Christ is sweeter than life itself. His presence is blessedness. The second thing it does for Simeon is it provides peace. Not only do Simeon's priorities reflect his witness of Christ, but so, but so does his peace. Simeon doesn't experience peace because things are going so well for him, right? It's not because his family and friends are happy and healthy. It's not because things are going really well for him at work. It's not because his marriage is, is in a really good position and he gets, he's getting along with his wife well. That the, those aren't the reasons why Simeon is experiencing peace here, right? Simeon has seen the face of Christ, and he knows a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a reaction that would leave the world, that would leave those who are in the darkness confused and staggered. But it's a reaction that would make sense to those of us who have seen the light. It makes sense to us because we also have seen the face of Christ. St. Augustine wrote that uh, Simeon's praise is a fitting response of how we all should respond when we see Christ. Right? Simeon isn't just an illustration for us of, of an ancient man and his response to holding the baby Jesus. He's a picture of what we should be like. It's a picture of what we should all respond to when we see Christ in his gospel 
and into the scriptures. Seeing our Lord should radically change our priorities of what matters most. Seeing our Lord should produce a radical peace in us that is beyond all comprehension, that the world looks on and says, what's wrong with you? How could you have peace now? And then, and then a third thing that I didn't note here because it wasn't in the verse, but it's obviously in the passage. We see praise. Simeon's praise. That's what we spent a majority of this time looking at is his praise to God. So let me ask you then, if this should be the typical Christian response to seeing Christ, has this been your response this Christmas? Has this been your response about the birth of our Lord? Has it been a response of priority, peace, and praise? Has it been your response as you've, as you've come to Christ and his word through sermons or through devotions or through whatever? Has that been your response? Have you had the response of priority, peace, and praise? And I ask you, if it hasn't, why? Why not? Why hasn't that been your response? What's separating you from seeing his splendor and enjoying the blessedness of his presence? How is this response even possible for old Simeon? How is he able to respond this way? How is he so hopeful and so overwhelmed at the sight of Christ? There are two things, I think. There are two things. The first, we've already taken note of. He had the Spirit of God. He had the Spirit of God. This, this, this whole thing would be impossible for Simeon. It would be impossible for any of us to be overwhelmed with the beauty of Christ apart from a spiritual insight that comes only from the indwelling of the Spirit in us. So if you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted him in his death and in his resurrection to deliver you from the present age of darkness, if you haven't trusted in him to do what you couldn't, then you can't have the spirit. And if you don't have the spirit, then you can't adore Christ like we see Simeon doing here. That only comes through trusting in Christ. If you find yourself then in that position today where you haven't trusted in Christ, but you long for the Spirit. You long for this. I encourage you to come up after the service. We'll have elders at the front who would love to talk more with you and to pray more with you about this. If you are a Christian, if you have genuinely trusted in Christ, and you have, then you have the Spirit. But it's very possible maybe you've hardened your heart to the Spirit and to his work inside of you. Maybe, maybe you're in need of repentance this morning. Maybe there is sin that is separating you from God and from having this sort of experience, a Simeon experience this morning in response to God's word and the beauty of our Savior. The second thing we see in old Simeon might be a little less obvious, but it's definitely there, is that we see he is a man who is fortified by God's word. He's a man of God's word, right? Look at the way he handles the scriptures. And it's not because he went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, right? And it's not because he went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Rather, he went to the school of prayer and meditation on God's word. He's been storing up God's word and meditating on it so that his response when he sees Christ is just to regurgitate what he's already filled his mind and his heart with. It's because he's made it a practice to listen to God in his word. 
Maybe your heart is so distant from Simeon's this morning because God's word is so distant from your heart. James 4.8 reads, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Just like in the example of Helen of Troy, we are a people who are called to, who are called to display radically changed lives by a face. We are called to live a dramatically changed life because of the beauty of a face. The beauty of the face of our Lord. Let us all be like old Simeon then and follow his example. Let us be a people marked for our priority, peace, and praise as we bask in the blessedness of his presence. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift of your son. I thank you for his beauty and his majesty. Lord, I pray that you would work a profoundly radical thing in our hearts, Lord, so that as we, as we look to your son, as we see his beauty, Father, that it would change everything for us. Lord, that it would change priorities in our life, that it would give us peace, Father, and that it would, that it would respond, that it would end in praise of you. Father, you are glorious and you are mighty. Please work powerfully. God, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit.